Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Creed is a four-week series of Cal St. G Academy. Each week, we'll take an informative and edifying look at the Apostles' Creed. These talks are recorded live every Sunday at Calvary Church. So last week, in the kind of intro I gave you, I, I gave you that illustration of that early third, maybe late second century example of what people went through when they were baptized. And then I ended it with an invitation to trust. I quoted St. Augustine, right? He has those famous lines, I believe in order to understand. And I think that's true for a lot of us, especially those of us raised with a hermeneutic of suspicion, raised to be suspicious about everything, and at times for good reason. But here we're trying to, at least for a second, turn that off or set that aside and then kind of have a second naivete. I can't even say that word. Being naive a second time. How do you say it? Naivete. Yeah, there you go. Um, So as we jump in, it's it's an invitation to trust. Even though you don't have all the evidence, we don't have all the proof. um, But what he said, right, is with experience, in walking, in coming to church and saying the creed, taking the sacrament, we come to see that God is in fact reliable. So let's jump right in. I don't want to take you too long, even though famous last words. So, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That is how the creed begins. This is what many people call the first article of the creed. So, what do we believe about Almighty God? This is about the Trinity, but it's also about the Father. So what do we believe about God? Well, right away, the creed uses the language of Scripture. We say that God is, and I'm putting it in quotes, Father. That word is an echo of revelation. Jesus reveals God as his Father. He relates to God as his own Father and invites us, his followers, to share in that same relationship. At different points in the Scripture, he calls God my Father and your Father, your Heavenly Father, and he teaches his disciples to pray the Our Father. And what that means is to stand alongside Jesus and address God in the same way that he does. So Jesus' relationship with God, it's it's unique to him, but by virtue of his work, he makes that relationship inclusive. So we, his followers, we stand on the inside of Jesus' unique relationship to God. Um, In other parts of the scriptures, we hear Jesus, when he's talking to God, he calls him Abba, which is another word for Father. Um, And by the Holy Spirit, St. Paul says, we are empowered to pray that same way, Abba, Father. This is a, God is not just some distant, transcendent deity, but God is as close as a brother. God is Father in this regard. So this is what it means to be baptized into the triune life. We talked a lot about baptism last week. To be baptized means that we are empowered. We've been made children of God. We're empowered to pray to God in the same way that Jesus uh, has. So we pray, speak to God, and God listens to us as if we were Jesus. 
And we've said so far that God, Jesus is God's child by nature. We become God's children by grace. Um, the, the, the ancients went so far as to say Jesus is eternally born from God. It didn't happen at one point, but there, this is an eternal relationship. Um, we, on the other hand, are adopted. That happened at a point and period in time. So when we confess that God is, again in quotes, Father, it is a confession of the defining relationship of our lives. Uh, we call Jesus or God Father because that is what Jesus calls God. And Jesus has related, or invited us to relate to God in the same way. So that's a whole lot of words to say that we call God Father because it's revealed. This isn't brought to us by philosophy. Um, and in a minute, I'll say a lot more about that. Because you should be probably wondering, if you're a child of the 21st century, doesn't this talk about God as father imply gender in God? Now, this might sound like a contemporary concern to us, but the early Christians were very sensitive to this problem. They took pains left and right to explain that the Bible uses the word father without any connotations of gender. In fact, this was one of the things that distinguished Christian belief from pagan ideas about God or the gods. You remember the, the colorful cast of Greek and Roman gods. Some are male, some are female. They could be passionate, hot-headed, lustful, unpredictable. They could change their minds. They could promise one thing and do another. The early Christian teachers were care, careful to differentiate the God of the Gospels from the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. So the pagan gods, there, there were many, but the God of Israel is one. The pagan gods can fly into a rage, but the true God is unchangeable. And they emphasize that word un- unchangeable, not to be like, well, God can't relate to us, but that word unchangeable meant that God is totally reliable. The Greek and pagan gods, right, they could change their minds at whim, their promises, you couldn't trust him, but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can trust, because this God is completely reliable. So, again, um, while the pagan gods could be male or female, according to the ancient Christians, the true God transcends gender, transcends the body. Uh, So in a a sermon preached by this guy named Gregory of Nazianzus, this is way back in the 4th century, he explained that the words father, and even for Jesus the word son, should be used um, without having any bodily ideas in our minds. Um, Does that make sense? Uh, Otherwise, we're back in paganism, uh, imagining a God who physically procreated in order to bring birth to the son. Um, Gregory asked this, do you take it that our God is male because of the masculine pronouns God and father? Is the Godhead female because in the Greek the word is feminine? He says such crude biological thinking would be pagan, not Christian. So what then does the word father mean? For Christians, the word describes a relationship and nothing more. Here's back to to Gregory again. 
Father, he de- Father designates neither the substance nor the activity, but the relationship, the manner of being which holds good between the Father and the Son. The Father is the source, the origin, the wellspring of divine life, and the Son eternally derives from that source. Now, that's some pretty heady stuff. So even if you can't follow along with all that, that's a lot of philosophy. Uh, Follow along with what I'm about to say. Um, It's all about the relationship of origin. Um, That is all we are meant to think about when we use that word father. Uh, St. Athanasius, who's also a a 4th or 5th century uh, Christian church father, he says this. Every bodily thought must be shunned in these matters, not because Christians have an aversion to the body, as we're going to see clearly in a second when we talk about God as creator of heaven and earth, um, but it's because we have an aversion to the pagan gods. I'm going to say that one more time. We shun every bodily thought, according to Gregory, not because we have an aversion to the body, but because we have such an aversion to these pagan gods who are unreliable, hot-headed, lustful, etc., So then there's one other conclusion that we can draw, and it is if the word father refers to this relation of origin within God, then God is not only eternally father, but he's son. If he's father, he's eternally father. Jesus is eternally the son. This is where we get into the mystery of the Trinity. Uh, So we always have in mind the eternal reality of both because God doesn't start becoming the Father. This relationship of origin is eternal. Uh, again, really heady stuff. But we're going to talk a lot more about this next week, and hopefully it'll become. I'm trying to make it slowly clearer. So I'm going to do like an in sum. We're talking about the Father. Uh, the The Bible uses the word Father for God. According to the ancient Christians, this isn't like some new idea without connotation of gender. The word describes a relationship we've been adopted into. Jesus is God's eternal son. We have been adopted in as children. We pray alongside with Jesus the same way he prays. Um, And then, as we'll see a little bit later, this also betrays to us uh, this mystery of the Trinity. God being eternally father. The word being eternally the son. So I'll probably say more about that later. Because, I mean, it always sucks to start the class off with like a really hot button issue of your time. But we'll come back. Um, We'll come back to that. So the ones I really wanted to focus on, if you were listening to the uh, video announcements, I was going to totally dodge Father. I was only going to do Almighty and Creator of Heaven and Earth. Uh, So these are the ones I really wanted to do. But I felt like I don't want to betray you. So here we are. So Almighty, uh, that is the kind of next idea in, for the first article of the Creed. So what does it mean? What does it mean that God's power is almighty? Well, it means he's truly almighty. It's hard to wrap our minds around this. He, what I mean by that, God is beyond every other power. Um, so much so that it's not like this. When we think about God, a lot of times we think of like the biggest thing in the universe or the strongest thing in the universe. But the early Christians say, and this is something the new atheists bring up all the time. God is a projection of the biggest thing that we can imagine. But the early Christians were much smarter than that. They're saying that God is, it's 
a different category. God is uncreated. Um, so there is no competition for power. Um, and this is really interesting for us because power, God's almighty power, is not to be understood as that of domination and control. Interestingly enough, this is, again, this is not even modern is making that. This is the ancients saying this. When talking about God's power, ancient Christians often compared God to a breastfeeding mother. This is one of the favorite images of the early Christians when talking about the almighty power of God. Why is that? Well, because we relate to God not as loyal subjects submitting to this powerful tyrant or ruler, but we relate to Almighty God as infants drawing nourishment um, from a mother. So when we think of the terms of Almighty, we're not thinking in terms of power, of, of a subjection and control, but of a power that frees and enables. There's no competition between us. God is totally free, so there's no need for manipulation uh, or to, to, to one-up. Um, and so this power, this divine power, according to Augustine, who I mentioned last week as well, he described God's almighty power as maternal love expressing itself as weakness often. Uh, so again, why do we focus in on the fact that God's power is almighty? Well, we do it because, again, it's on a totally different sphere altogether. There's no competition with that power. Um, and we believe that Scripture has revealed this power to be as such. Um, second, um, and again, I think this is really just coming out of the first, me trying to explain it a little bit more. Um, but the problem with trying to put limitations on God's power is that it would mean, is me just saying what I said earlier in a different way, that God's power would be one among others. Uh, God would be mighty, but not almighty. Um, and if this were the case, as it is in paganism, because a lot of this is in response to paganism, um, then that power really would be a form of a, a competition of power. It would be about manipulation and control. But the early church Christians, and this is what they focus in on when they talk about this, more than what I've given you so far. They, they zero in on the fact that God is totally free. That God is sovereign and can relate into the world with complete love, patience, and generosity. Because God's not, unlike us, God is not vying for power. It's on a totally different realm. And as we know very well, there is power in creation. Um, Every living thing has its own unique power and energy. But God need not and does not compete with these powers. So, I'm going to jump to the maker of heaven and earth right now. This is probably going to be the longest one. But in a nutshell, God's almighty power has no rival. Um, Again, it's not about the ability to control, as controlling behavior, we know well, is a sign of weakness and insecurity. This is the power that can love and enable without reserve. 
So that's what, when the early Christians are thinking about God as being almighty, they're saying God is free. God is unlike the pagan deities. God can truly love. This is why God can keep God's promises. Because he's not competing with anything. Really, it is like a mother who just, that illustration, because you're just loving to build up, if that makes sense. So again, we'll come back to that too. Uh, But creator of heaven and earth, or maker of heaven and earth, depending on your translation. Um, And again, all these I hope will connect by the end. But again, way back in the second century, the 100s, just like for these other things, Christians were were struggling to define their beliefs and commitments in opposition to popular rival teachings. Uh, I think I told you last week, right? Uh, We had the resurrection of Christ, and only afterwards are these Christians trying to make sense of, oh, what are the implications of this? What did this mean? Uh, We see this in Paul and in the New Testament writers. Um, But in this ancient world, uh, the prevailing milieu or mood was one of deep spiritual pessimism. Uh, Members of the educated class seem to take it for granted that the physical world is inherently evil and irredeemable. Uh, They yearn to escape from the world of the flesh to experience spiritual enlightenment. So we have very early on in the history of the church, some of you have heard about Marcion. Marcion, uh, by all evidence, a very charismatic teacher. People got behind him. He said, which was in line with his milieu, with the milieu of the the New Testament world, that the material universe was created by a wicked and incompetent deity. You can see how we've already talked about the Father as being, you know, almighty and for us. But he is saying, no, in fact, there are, in fact, two gods. There's the creator who created all this wicked stuff like our flesh. Um, in fact, he called flesh, he, was, he called it flesh stuffed with dung. That's what he called the human body. Uh, and like some of the Gnostic teachers of his day, uh, he was horrified by things like sex. He viewed procreation as a monstrous evil. So Mar- Marcion's followers, um, they adapt their lives to this austere renunciation of sex, marriage, child rearing, natural bonds are dissolved. Only spiritual bonds, according to Marcion, are of any lasting or any real value. So that was one challenge to the Christian faith early on that the early Christians are, are wrestling with. And these are many of the Christians in the early church are thinking this way because this is what's the air they breathe, the intellectual air they breathe, the cultural air that they breathe. But another challenge to the emerging Christian movement was Um, the Gnostics. And there were, the Gnostics are, it's too hard to identify what are the Gnostics, because there are many. Um, But some things that hold these Gnostics together is that they, they talk about having this secret knowledge about the cosmos and about the soul. Uh, This is secret knowledge that had to be revealed kind of in stages, not all at once. Uh, Maybe you've seen some of the the cosmology of the ancient world, the archons and the soul trying to free itself. These people, they think that way. This is in the air, uh, kind of like the way 
uh, I can't think of an example of what's in the air for us, but hopefully that's good enough. Um, They taught, essentially, um, generally speaking, that the physical world, much like Marcion, it was created by an inferior deity, and that salvation is consistent in escaping from the material world by means of wisdom. Uh, and again, these teachings were, were diverse. There's, there's no like, well, these are what the Gnostics are. They're kind of far-ranging. But what they had in common was this dualism uh, that divided the creator from the redeemer. The creator is, go- is bad. The redeemer is good. The world of the flesh is bad. The human spirit, good. Um, pretty simplistically put, but that's, that's a general outline. Um, so the confession that we say in baptism here, right off the bat, right? Creator of heaven and earth. This is, these are fighting words in the ancient world. Um, in baptism, we say these words because unlike Marcion and unlike the Gnostics, the early Christians are not world deniers. They're world affirmers. Now, this might sound backwards to us here today, right? A lot of times when people talk about Christians, oh, like, denial of this, denial of, like, the, uh, when I, the, the goal of life is to go to heaven in the sky when I die. The early Christ, Christians were, were perceived as the exact opposite in the ancient world. We are world affirmers. Um, and they're trying a really hard thing to do. This, this world-denying impulse is in the air. And they are saying, they are combating it. Um, So right from the start, we see Christians marked by their positive stance toward creation. Um, We see even the Gospels themselves, right? St. John, he retells Israel's story, right? Genesis 1, the first words of Scripture, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through the Word. The early Christians from the beginning are world affirmers. Um, I don't want to say that. I want to say this. Okay. So I, I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this fact that it was spiritually counterculture in the ancient world to be baptized into a world affirming faith. Uh, this really is countercultural. So the ancients, ancient Christians, um, when thinking through the implications of the resurrection of the flesh, they take that by extension to say that nothing in this world is inherently evil. Because wouldn't that make God evil or somewhat evil? Um, they confess that everything in this world has been made by the good and wise God from for whom they had come to know in Jesus. Now, I mentioned this a little bit last week, but part of Gnosticism's appeal is that it has a rather elegant solution for the problem of evil. If you're not familiar with the problem of evil, good God, lots of suffering in this world. Why? If God is totally good, why is there evil? Is God not good? Is a real problem that we need to think about. But the Gnostics have an answer to that problem. They say, why is there so much evil and suffering in this world? 
Well, because the world, the cosmos, is the product of an evil God. So the very stuff of creation to them is deficient. Um, so again, like going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, in this way of thinking about the Redeemer as being good, the Redeemer is one power among many, not almighty. Um, in fact, he's competing, or God is competing with another God that's evil. So it is, it's an elegant solution to the problem. But as I kind of said last week, it seems to raise more problems than it solves. Uh, If before I was tormented by experiences of suffering and injustice, after accepting this Gnostic doctrine, I come to see my very existence as an intolerable injustice. So before... I was at home in the world and had protested against the disagreeable parts of life. Now I find that the world is not my home at all. I am radically alienated from life, the life of all creatures, the life of human society, my own life, my own body. Here, what we have is my spiritual existence is the lonely spark of goodness in an overwhelmingly hostile world from which I long to flee and whose destruction I yearn for. Doesn't this sound a whole lot like that kind of thinking of, I just can't wait till, you know, I die and then I can go in heaven in the sky. That sounds a whole lot more like Gnosticism, like Marcion, than what the early Christians were talking about. So this is what it feels like to be a Gnostic in the ancient world, even a Gnostic Christian in the ancient world. So you start out, you want this problem, a solution to the problem of evil, and you end up experiencing all of creation, even your own body, as a vast prison from which you need to find a way to flee. Uh, Last week I, I gave this to you as well, and I'll do it again. I think that the best illustration I've seen for, um, for the Gnostic problem, solution to the problem of evil is uh, that the person who sees the red, the red wine stain on a portion of the carpet, right? Uh, and your solution to getting rid of that stain or to answering that stain is to cover the rest of the carpet in wine. So therefore, it's all red. Uh, the stain isn't visible any longer, but at what cost? Uh, So on some level, in the early church, what they are combating is is the transformation of all of creation into being evil. They're saying, no, creation is good. We affirm the world. Um, The early Christians go to, like, they're not evil deniers, right? They're Lord, our Lord. Uh, suffered a humiliating death on a cross. Uh, we even talk about the mark of the Christian life as being, you know, we carrying our cross on some level. Uh, but they go so far as to say that evil, properly speaking, does not have any substance of its own. It's not something that was created. It's good things having gone amok. Um, this is why the fall in Christian doctrine is so very important. Um, Good things, when they turn away from their own nature, their own purpose, they become a deficient version of 
themselves. Um, so the, the famous, a favorite illustration in the ancient church is that uh, evil is the absence of good qualities, such as darkness is um, the absence of light. We see that by in our readings today. There's this notion that it's more an absence. Uh, uh, something has been twisted out of joint. But that is not to say that evil isn't significant, uh, that, or that evil is insignificant. Um, the early church Christians really believed that the consequences of evil are real, devastating, and though many things happen in this world that are evil, we nevertheless, in, in defiant tone, say that the world is good, that it's worth saving, it's worth being an artist, it's worth embracing your body, despite the fact that it ages and breaks down and at times is disgusting. For Christians, um, the, the cosmos is sick and needs to be healed. It's not an evil world that needs to be destroyed. And so this is the type of thing that the early church Christians, when putting together the creed in response to, to the resurrection of Christ, in response to the scriptures, this is what they mean by that. Right at the beginning, the creator of heaven and earth. For this God is good. This God does not create something evil just for the fun of it. So, I'm going to end with this, and then we can kind of open the floor if you want. But it's sometimes said that creeds, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, that they're narrow. Or some people go to say that they're, go so far as to say that they're intolerant. But you can see that in the ancient world where these were crafted, it's exactly the opposite. It's the Apostle, in the Apostles' Creed that Christians take a stand on behalf of creation, on behalf of human bodies. Um, it's the creed that says no to doctrines that condemn creation, that disparage the body, that seek escape from the world of the flesh. So I'm here to argue, and maybe rather provocatively, that Gnosticism, that the ideas that the early Christians are fighting against, that is the comprehensive intolerance. It was intolerance of the universe and of life and whatever it means to be human. So I'm really going to end with this. In saying yes, or saying no to Gnosticism, the early Christians are saying yes to the material universe. So we don't have to be ashamed of it. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live. Or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.